action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personally. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, Retrospectating 1999, the final chapter. Uh, Matt, this is just, uh, we're going to retrospectate on our retrospectation today. Yeah, we're going three levels deep on this one. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's sort of the quantum realm of 1999. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so th- there's going to be no real structure to this. We kind of just want to share our thoughts on, on all the 99 movies we watched mm-hmm. and look back to look ahead and sort of how it informs now and the future of film and, and what took place in the in the last 20 years. So, Matt, uh, how do you want to sum up 1999 in just like one or two sentences? The second or third most important year in the history of Cinema? Okay. Should we say? I mean, let's just get, let's just go right at it. I mean, you know, 1939, I guess, is pretty hard to argue with, but I think 1999 definitely needs to be part of the top five most important movie years of all time conversation. The amount of discourse that occurred over the last year and the amount of people who seem to agree with this and the amount of films that were talked about that I feel really held up. I, I, I'm anxious to go through this list again with you. And we don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole in each of the individual films because we dedicated episodes to them. But the the overall impression I got was that I was much more positive about these films than you were. I, I found it interesting that it seemed like I was constantly coming from a place of like, wow, this really held up or this has matured. And you kind of coming from a place of like, oh, this is not aged very well. <laughs> that, that sounds somewhat accurate. I mean, I think I was being somewhat nitpicky. I'm always trying to fight against uh, nostalgia. Right. And I I think it's important to sort of realize, oh, the way you felt about a movie years, decades ago is going to inform the way you think about it now. If you had nice, warm, fuzzy feelings, you connect that the way you were feeling at that moment and then watch it again, like those feelings are going to bubble back up. So I may have been too harsh in fighting against stuff like that. But on the whole, you look at this list of movies and it is pretty spectacular. And, you know, I made my top 10 list for 99 just going into this podcast. And it's quite the freaking list, man. Like, it's just really iconic movie after iconic movie. And, uh, you know, I, I want to delve deeper into why you think, and I'm not saying I disagree with you, but why you think it is, this year is so important. You know, what it wrought, the, the, the different types of filmmakers that actually made movies in this year. And sort of how it's uh, moved forward uh, Hollywood you know, since then. So, like, let's start there. Like, why, what are the main arguments that you would make for this being such an important movie, uh, movie year? I've been reading Brian Rafferty's book, which I'll give a plug here too, because I think it's quite excellent. I haven't made it through yet, but um, it came out, I think, in August of last year, and it's called Best Movie Year Ever. 
best period movie period year period ever period subtitle how 1999 blew up the big screen it's really great if you are into this to this kind of stuff I, I listened to you know many interviews and podcasts with him when the book first came out and he obviously explicates this stuff better than any of us I mean he wrote a whole goddamn book about it but he dedicates chapters to the Blair Witch Project, uh, Run, Lola, Run, Go, and Following, Office Space, The Matrix, uh, an entire chapter dedicated to Varsity Blue, She's All That, Cruel Intentions, 10 Things I Hate About You, and American Pie, uh, Election, Rushmore, and the Virgin Suicides, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace has its own chapter, Iron Giant, Galaxy Quest, Eyes Wide Shut, and The Mummy, The Sixth Sense and The Blair Witch Project, The Best Man and The Wood. American Beauty, Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, Three Kings, The Limey, The Insider, Boys Don't Cry, and then his last chapter is about Magnolia. The prologue is subtitled, Losing All Hope Was Freedom. The epilogue is subtitled, We Are the Middle Children of History. I think you know which movie both of those quotes come from, and I think it's it's pretty savvy on his part to pull from Fight Club in that manner, and it's pretty clear from what I've read in the book that he considers that to be, you know, at least the most important or the most telling film of 1999. Just when I was sort of like, to the best of my ability, try to put my finger on exactly why this year was so important from like a larger thematic place, as opposed to just saying like, wow, so many great movies. No, no, we need to go deeper than that and try and figure out what are all these movies saying about this time in in the history of the world. <laughs> to me, it was a year in which the idea of narrative was somewhat redefined or at least challenged. And it was also the year when Generation X and what we then called Generation Y and have since renamed Millennial Generation sort of came together, collided, if you will, came of age. The oldest, if you believe in the notion that the Millennial Generation started in 1981, that the oldest Millennials are born 81, 82-ish, then that means that millennials were turning 18 in 1999, so becoming adults, if you will. And yet, most of the films being made in 99 are the, you know, the 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 loudest films, the noisiest, the ones we've been revisiting throughout this series, are films that are fundamentally about Generation X concerns, right? So to me, it was a, it, it's kind of about Generation X coming to grips with adulthood uh, as seen in you know something like like Fight Club or even Office Space and then Generation Y turning 18 and sort of like coming online if you will and, and and reckoning with that and like looking at Generation X's issues and sort of reconciling them and it was also about many different generations of filmmakers doing some of their strongest work and proving that they could like reach across generational boundaries to make some of their best work you look at Three filmmakers from three different generations who made one of their best films each. Kubrick is, was 71 years old when he made Eyes Wide Shut in 99. Michael Mann was 56 years old when he made The Insider. And David Fincher was 37 years old when he made Fight Club. So you got these guys from three different generations all making super zeitgeisty movies over the course of the same year. It was also right on the cusp of the comic book thing taking hold, X-Men comes out in July of, of 2000. And it was about important filmmakers experimenting with the idea of, of narrative, you know, not to always take it back to Christopher Nolan, but Nolan was making uh, Memento. I think he wrapped Memento in October of 1999. And so that comes out in 2000, comes out of the Venice Film Festival and kind of redefines what narrative is, is capable of. And I feel in my heart of hearts that he was inspired by the kinds of films he was seeing, you know, earlier in 1999 when he was making Memento. You know, Run, Lola, Run comes out in 98 in Europe and then comes out here in 99. And that 
is obviously an, an inspirational film for a number of reasons, a, a very a groundbreaking movie. You know, Time Code comes out in 2000, and I think Russian Ark comes out in 2000 as well. So these are the films that paved the way for, you know, Victoria and Birdman and 1917 even in terms of like experimenting with this, you know, one shot, one take, whatever you want to call it. Obviously uh, influencing people like Koran and um, and his countrymen in, in Yuritu. So I just think that like the seeds of all this important stuff is is being sown in 1999. Uh, I'm just going to read from Brian Rafferty's book here. Before the year 99 was over, the recently launched movies by mail company Netflix would raise 30 million in funding and introduce its first monthly DVD rental plan. So for those of you playing We Like Movies Bingo, I have already mentioned Netflix and Christopher Nolan in the first five minutes of this conversation. <laughs> there you go. I'll keep going with, with a couple more Rafferty quotes here just because I think he's so he's just so eloquent about this stuff. Audience members who'd spent the 90s restri- retraining their brains to absorb everything from reality TV to Resident Evil to pixel-dusted webcam videos were willing to play along even if they didn't always know what they were getting into. Y2K was its own kind of phantom menace. We'd spent so much time wondering what the 21st century might look like, most of us failed to notice that it had already shown up. And if you wanted to see it, all you had to do was go to the movies. I, I really think that you feel the, I guess, kind of the specter the, the, uh, of the unknown, you know, like the Y2K <laughs> Uh, paranoia or whatever pervasive throughout most of the films that we've talked about like just a a, a little bit of, of nihilism a little bit of apprehension perhaps but also maybe excitement about the unknown not knowing what's going to happen at the stroke of midnight in 1999 no there is quite a bit of existentialism of nue of anarchy of uh just you know uh Deep thoughts and not knowing where things are, how things are going to play out. A lot of apocalyptic narratives for sure. These are heavy issues, but like you said, sort of with a bit of a nihilistic streak, whether it's Fight Club or even Magnolia or Eyes Wide Shut. And then you have a lot of the technology influence and especially internet stuff, whether that's Matrix or Office Space or like technology being sort of a a big thematic through line for a lot of these movies. I haven't done as deep of dive, like comparing the top 50 movies in this year to the, the, the 2000s that followed or the nineties preceding it. But my sense is just in looking over the, the nineties previously to this, it is heavier. Like it does feel heavier. It does feel like more of a burden that, that these filmmakers are, are taking on. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it is just a murderer's row of filmmakers in this year, all at different uh, points in their careers. Like you said, I'm just going to read a list of people who made movies in 99 and it's not exhaustive, but it's pretty crazy. Just when you look at it, Sam Mendes, Oliver Stone, Spike Jones, Pedro Almodovar, Stanley Kubrick, Frank Oz, Kevin Smith, David Fincher, Doug Lyman, Jim Jarmusch, Michael Mann, Frank Darabont, Steven Soderbergh, Milos Forman, Wachowski Brothers, David O. Russell, Sofia Coppola, George Lucas, Spike Lee. And I'm sure I'm missing some more there, but it's like, it is crazy. The sort of, the wide swath of, of just legendary filmmakers that did something more often than not, one of their most iconic, if not best films yeah. um, in 99. That's, it's very significant because when you're reading through that list and I was trying to connect the dots of the filmmakers you were talking about and the film they made in 99 for a lot of them was like, I think you make the argument that that was the best movie they have. You know, like I think the Limey is Soderbergh's best film personally. And, you know, I think Brian Brini made a very good case for the insider being Michael Mann's best film. Um, you know, not necessarily his most fun, but potentially just his, his, his best work. You know what happened on January 10th, 1999, just speaking of, of the seeds being sown for the, the current media landscape we live in. Oh, geez. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Did, 
IMDb go live or something? <laughs> that had been a, a, live a little while. earlier than that. No, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the Sopranos pilot premieres on HBO oh, January okay. 10th, 1999. So the birth of prestige TV was that year as well. Exactly right. You know, fandom was really coming online, uh, pun intended. You know, Ain't It Cool News was, you know, debatably at the height of its powers or at least really building steam at that point. So a lot of this stuff was moving on to the Internet. Like You, you know, you just mentioned Kevin Smith. He was one of the earliest adopters of this kind of thing. Uh, he was already building, you know, kind of a cult. So, yeah, just, just a lot of this stuff was being was being sown at this point. I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the Oscars recently for obvious reasons. And we could at the end of this conversation, we can maybe even just briefly discuss what happened last weekend because it's pretty exciting and pretty significant. But I think it's worth looking at the Oscars that took place in 99. Like we've talked about the Oscars for the year 99. And we can discuss that again briefly if we want to. But I think it might be worth just just quickly looking at the Oscars uh, from 1998 that took place in 99. Because I think that's a little bit telling as well. It took place on March 21st. 1999. And that is the infamous year where the Shakespeare in Love quote unquote upset beat Saving Private Ryan, right? And so it, it was a much more traditional year in terms of the nominees. You had three World War II films, uh, if you consider Life is Beautiful a World War II film, and then you had two um, Elizabethan era films, right? Uh, Elizabeth and, and uh, Shakespeare in Love. And then you had Roberto Benini from the aforementioned Life is Beautiful winning best actor he was nominated in you know picture director and actor he won for actor and at the time i think he was i think life is beautiful was only the second film to have been nominated in both what was then called foreign film and best picture i think z was the only one that existed at that point and that's pretty significant considering the fact that south korea and bong joon ho made um made history last last weekend you just have a lot of stuff in it. You know, you have Randy Newman double nominated this particular ceremony. Lots of interesting stuff. Obviously, Shakespeare in Love and, and uh, Saving Private Ryan dominating most of this. Um, Shakespeare in Love has 13 nominations. Saving Private Ryan has 11. But it might also, it's, it's also kind of interesting to just briefly look through the presenters for this particular ceremony in terms of, of what happened last weekend. Kim Basinger, Gwyneth Paltrow, Patrick Stewart, Mike Myers, Christina Ricci, Brendan Fraser, Flick and Heimlich from uh, A Bug's Life. Uh, the late Robin Williams, Chris Rock, Liv Tyler, Angelica Houston, Tom Hanks, John Glenn, Sophia Loren, Andy Garcia, and Andy and Andy McDowell. Uh, Gina Davis, who won the Thalberg Award um, last month. John Travolta, Anne Heche, Jim Carrey, Renee Zellweger, Nicolas Cage, Liam Neeson, Val Kilmer, Helen Hunt, Lisa Kudrow, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. Whoopi Goldberg, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Jennifer Lopez, Annette Bening, Jack Valenti, Colin Powell, Uma Thurman, Jack Nicholson, Steven Spielberg, Goldie Hawn, Steve Martin, Kevin Costner, and then Harrison Ford presenting Best Picture statuette, uh, somewhat famously kind of double-taking when he realizes it's not Saving Private Ryan. Mariah Carey and the late Whitney Houston perform When You Believe from The Prince of Egypt. Aerosmith performs I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon. Alison Moore, Moror, a Soft Place to Fall from The Horse Whisperer. I know it's one of Scarlett Johansson's earliest films. Peter Gabriel and Randy Newman perform That'll Do from Babe, Pig in the City. And Celine Dion and Andrea Bocelli perform The Prayer from Quest for Camelot. So I think there's a lot of lowercase t traditional things going on in a ceremony like this a lot of things kind of shift a year later you know something like Shakespeare in Love or Saving Private Ryan feel like much more straight down the middle traditional picks whereas something like American Beauty was much more sort of left field and uh, even subversive the uh, ratings for that particular ceremony were 
45.51 million. By contrast, last weekend's ceremony was 23.6 million. <laughs> so <laughs> you've lost half. Your audience has been cut in half over the course of the last 21 years. The striking thing, looking at the nominees between 98 and 99, you have a lot of sort of off-kilter, button-pushing, weirder movies, right? You have Spike Jones being nominated for being John Malkovich, uh, which is pretty crazy. Sixth Sense is its own weird thing. Now, I mean, that became a sort of cultural touchstone and made a shit ton of money. Twisty horror film for kids or whatever, uh, getting catapulted into the best picture race is not uh, is not typical. And then Hillary Swank getting awarded for Boys Don't Cry, that's kind of a big deal too. Not to say that the Academy hasn't been you know open to sort of stories like that even in the past, but and, and even so, looking at the nominees for the you know the awards that took place in 2000 for the 1999 films, it doesn't include a ton of movies that uh, we talked about and were sort of uh, groundbreaking in their own right uh, in 1999. It's just kind of interesting to me that Sam Mendes' debut feature, American Beauty, ends up being a cultural touchstone of, of some kind, becomes this sort of surprise hit, wins all these Oscars. And at the time, it seems sort of like the progressive, interesting, risky left field choice cut to 20 years later. And he was on the verge of winning his second Oscar for what many considered the boring, traditional, straight down the middle (laughs) choice, right? Yeah, yeah. Didn't end up working out that way, but it would have been interesting if it had. He was the favorite up until Sunday afternoon. Uh, it really did seem like kind of, the, for a lot of people, the boring choice, if only by nature of being a war movie, right? Yeah. Like to have come through the Bond film looking glass and landed as the ho-hum, boring, safe choice on the other side <laughs> after making, you know, something like American Beauty, which really um, pushed some buttons in 99. I just thought it was was quite interesting. Well, I, I guess 1917, it's his first for screenwriting credit, really, right? It is. Absolutely, yeah. It'd be cool to see Sam Mendes go back to some sort of American Beauty 20, 25 years later type thing. Like, just make another state of the uh, suburbs film. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's see a sequel. Yeah, let's see a sequel about Ricky Fitz. We need an, we need another role for Thor Birch at this point. So in, in my research for all this stuff, in addition to this, this great book, Best Movie Year Ever by Brian Rafferty, I also came across a great article uh, that was written last year called Why 1999 Was the Best Year for Film, written by Alan Horner of The Independent. So I'll just quote from him briefly here. Economics played a big part in 1999's run of impressive original narrative films. The fight for the future of movies, a gripping account of recent Hollywood history written by Ben Fitz. He says the golden age of TV had not really started yet. TV was still mostly cop shows and sitcoms. For anything original, you had to go to the cinema. Multiplexes were still bustling places as the end of the millennium drew near, making for a robust movie-making economy that was about to become even more profitable with the advent of DVDs. It cost studios only a couple of dollars to make and ship a DVD. Then they'll sell it at a wholesale price of 15 The rest was all profit, and people were buying DVDs all the time. Stores would make them a lost leader to get you in to buy groceries. The economics of DVDs were great for studios and meant that even if a movie didn't do great at the theater, it could still make money after the fact. Fight Club, for example, was a huge disappointment on release, grossing $37 million against a production budget of $63 million at the box office, but became a huge sleeper hit on home video. And I think that's really important because so many of the movies that we talked about, Fight Club, Office Space, Magnolia even, uh, The Iron Giant, which is a movie we didn't really discuss but has since become in a lot of ways the platonic ideal of the cult favorite right i mean the the love for that movie is is the reason that 
you know, like Brad Bird has gotten to make a, you know, a Mission Impossible movie into <laughs> Incredibles movie. You know, like the, the Iron Giant was a flop, but that movie has a devoted cult. I personally find it to be ever so slightly overrated. I know it's a somewhat unpopular opinion. I don't, but but a lot of people just absolutely adore it. You know, not least of which is Steven Spielberg, who found a way to shoehorn that character into um, Ready Player One, even in a significant <laughs> yeah. way. I think the enom- economics are really important to talk about, and that DVD thing is is interesting and something I hadn't like deeply considered before now but it makes sense i just want to run some stats by you so in 1999 four out of the top 20 domestic box office films were sequels remakes or part of an ongoing franchise right star wars awesome powers 2 toy story 2 and the world is not enough 16 were not in 1999 18 i mean in 2019 18 of the 20 top uh, top 20 movies were sequels, remakes, or part of an ongoing franchise. Only two original films last year in the top 20. That would be Us and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then if you look at 21 through 40, only eight of those 20 movies, 21 through 40 at the box office, only eight of those 20 in 2019 were originals. 1999, all 20 were more or less original films. Three kind of exceptions. Thomas Crown Affair is technically a remake. Pokemon... And then if you want to count, like, South Park. What that means, 1999, 90% of the top 40 domestic box office are original films. In 2019, only 25% of the top 40 box office are original films. This is entirely due, I would argue, to economics, right? Franchise films have a higher floor and a higher ceiling than original movies, which is unfortunate. And original movies like Fight Club that might come and go at the box office. But if you believe in them and they are great, they will turn it around and and make money after the fact, right? So they don't have that safety net nowadays. I I guess the juice just isn't worth the squeeze to pump out these sort of mid-budget original movies. Just to hop on your kind of stat train, looking at the top 10 films of 99, I see one, two, three, four, five... I see six studios represented in that top 10 ranking as opposed to the four studios represented in 2019's ranking of the top 10. And seven of those movies came from Disney. We're also seeing this sort of like monopolistic thing happening as well, right? Consolidation. Yeah, that's probably that's a less scary word, I guess. (laughs) Also, when I look at this top 10 of 2019, I see only one film of the top 10 that uh, was a Best Picture nominee compared to 99, which two of the films in the top 10 uh, were Best Picture nominees. The Best Picture nominee from 2019 was, of course, part of a comic book franchise, uh, even though it's a bit of an outlier film, which is, of course, The Joker. In uh, 99, it's two original films, The Sixth Sense and American Beauty, which goes on to win Best Picture. American Beauty made $356 million in 1999, which is crazy. Just to bring it full circle again to Mendy's, 1917 is probably going to top out right around $350 million 20 years later. (laughs) It's currently at 323, and I could see it maybe just passing, you know, maybe barely passing American Beauty, but I think it's going to top out somewhere between 350 and 360. Yeah, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about Sopranos. I, I guess it's worth discussing. Do you think just nowadays people want their prestige shit at home on the couch because that's what they're used to, and they don't really want to go out to the movies for anything that's not a sort of event? Either take the kids to see an animated movie or see a big action film that's part of a franchise that you've been you've been following there's the there's a lack of willingness to see anything original just because you don't know is there a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy 
going on here in terms of economics? Like, does it just come down to the whole, the rent is too damn high situation? You know, like it's just too damn expensive to take the film, you know, take the family. Ticket prices just keep going up and up and up, right? You could say that like the quality of films or at least the variety of films is going down as ticket prices just skyrocket. People are just that much less inclined to go out to the theaters because the variety is less interesting, but prices are higher than they've ever been in history. I mean, ticket prices just for a, you know for a matinee in New York are topping twenty dollars now. I would like to believe that if a movie gets good word of mouth, that people will go and see it. Like quality will that like you know it, it will be a meritocracy at some level. I think we've seen that with Parasite, even though that's a unique situation where the word of mouth has just sustained it, slow drip until the Oscars, and now it's going to make even more money at the box office. But but maybe that argument doesn't bear weight because you look at something like Fight Club, which was critically lauded and had good word of mouth, also didn't do well at the box office. So I don't know. Maybe it's part that. You know, people have only so many times that they're going to go to the movie theater, and those times are now being consolidated by the big franchise films. And, and, and you know, the big movies now are making way more money than the big movies were back in 1999. Yeah, yeah, consolidation, like you said. Now you've got the big sort of marquee filmmakers kind of going to the streamers. When your Martin Scorsese's or even your Noah Bombox are choosing to go you know, make their films with Netflix and people are going to have access to that at home. Like, I know that they'll, they'll never do this because they have a brand that they want to maintain and a, and a certain amount of mystery that, that their brand relies on. But wouldn't you just love to see the actual numbers on something like The Irishman or Marriage Story or even Six Underground, for example? I just because there's no way we can we can't compare this like we could compare if, you know, if The Irishman had won a bunch of Oscars or something, which it didn't. It went home completely empty handed and Marriage Story only won one Oscar. So Netflix had, actually had sort of a rough time uh, last weekend but we can compare the amount of awards won but we can't compare box office with this stuff you know like is would the irishman have been the 18th highest grossing film of last year if you account for the amount of subscribers who signed up specifically to watch the irishman we'll never know we can't yeah we can't compare this stuff because they won't release the numbers that's not really even the math though that amazon or netflix or hulu or whoever is is even looking at they 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 care even more i mean they do care about gaining subscribers but they care most about keeping the subscribers they have and sort of filling out their library in a way that you know just every prestige film that they have exclusive access to is just is just one more thing so it is a different ball game and it, it is sort of weird when you break it down you know, binarily and say the prestige movies are going to the places that don't necessarily care about pure numbers in terms of monetary like box office gain. And that's probably a bad trend when, you know, Netflix eventually decreases their budget. They feel like they have enough of a pool of, uh, of material to sort of exist with. Then what happens? I mean, are the studios going to uh, take back these prestige filmmakers? Are audiences going to be willing to go back out to the theater for these kinds of movies? I don't know. I mean, it, it is sort of a scary time. And I know I've, I've been bullish on the, the future of, of cinema. But, you know, the more we go down this path with, you know, Scorsese's bombbacks, like you said, the scarier it kind of gets. Well, you just look at what's happening at on Aperna, right? In what you know, what's going on with Megan Allison and her current financial woes? Not not that she's going hungry or anything. It seemed like that was going to be the future. Like, oh, these these real these people with really good taste and deep pockets are going to save this um, this art form or whatever. That business model is just not sustainable because those movies are just too expensive and don't turn enough of a profit. Like, God bless. Paul Thomas Anderson for what he's doing out there. And Phantom Thread actually did turn a profit, but Phantom Thread was a focus movie. So by extension, a universal movie, a studio movie. We look at 
what's going on with 824 and neon right now and like oh man it's 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 high time it's the salad days for those guys but it could very easily turn around as well like they could end up in an Annapurna situation it's just you know like they've just ended up being really smart with their acquisitions and stuff and they're winning Oscars now so good for them but this stuff is you know you can't necessarily get too confident about these kinds of things because you know stuff can turn around very quickly yeah you don't want to rely on the outfits that <laughs> don't necessarily need to make money if if Annapurna's thing early on was like oh megan ellison is rich she doesn't necessarily care about turning the biggest profit therefore she can green light and produce these movies that no one else will like you said that's probably not sustainable long term right you can't just operate at a loss indefinitely no matter i don't care how deep her pockets are you know like she's at, at some point you're gonna have to shutter the place if you can't turn a profit yeah and so you have to live in a world where the objective needs to be well we need to find a way for these movies to turn a profit i think you got to maintain a certain amount of optimism with this kind of stuff otherwise why why, why bother like why are we doing this you gotta you gotta have a little bit of altruism right you got you have to look at a year like 99 and be like let's not look back and and, and be like woe is me it'll never be that good again let's look back and be like, let's let's try to have another year like this. Like, let's try to be that risky. Again, it's not my money, so it's easy for me to say, but I wish there were more Megan Ellisons out there who were willing to kind of mix it up. Things are somewhat cyclical. I think one of the things we might be overlooking here, and this is somewhat subjective, but the box office has been dominated by franchise films. The box office recently has been dominated by, you know, Marvel specifically, right? Part of the reason I would like to think is that the Marvel movies are more or less pretty good. And and that may not always be the case where the biggest events are always the best. So maybe all it's going to take is sort of a downturn in the quality or a little audience fatigue. We're not sure if that will ever happen. I mean, we've kind of seen it with Star Wars, right? For studios to not put all their eggs in the franchise basket and try to get out and, and, and get some original films. Knives Out. Maybe Knives Out is, 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 a, is a thing that will spurn studios to let quality filmmakers make middle budget uh, original genre films, right? Maybe that'll happen. It's a very big deal that, that Knives Out was such a big hit. I think it may have just passed 400 million, something like that. And that's that's a big deal. And now it's going to be a franchise. And I think we're all actually kind of happy about that, right? It was an original film that now is going to give birth to a franchise. And, and franchise doesn't have to be a bad, it doesn't have to be an F word necessarily, right? If we're going to get more fun movies in the Knives Out universe, I think that's ultimately a good thing. You know, the fact that we didn't, we weren't familiar with the Benoit Blanc character before, you know, November of last year, and now he's going to have his own franchise, much more exciting than than the inevitable Joker sequel, right? We already knew about the Joker before Todd Phillips' Joker, and nobody was surprised that they're probably going to just back the Brinks truck up to Joaquin Phoenix's house and make another one. But that's not, that's not very exciting. But the Benoit Blanc extended universe, that's exciting. Yeah, and, and that can be educational and just remind studios that just because it's an original film without an obvious sort of plan for a sequel doesn't mean it can't become a franchise right number five movie in 99 was the matrix an original film that became a franchise the mummy which is you know it's a remake i suppose i mean but that became a franchise analyze this became a franchise american pie became a franchise so i mean there are ways to to stick with this i mean you can take some bets on some original movies by talented people and they may you know bear fruit for the next 20 years what do you think not to take us off on some weird tangent here but what do you think accounts for the relative failure of something like birds of prey is it just that people didn't really like suicide squad despite the fact that it was nominally a success and so they're like uh 
we didn't like Suicide Squad, so we're not interested in a spinoff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it didn't have probably the name recognition or, or the star power of any of these recent uh, DC movies. I, I, I don't know. I guess Shazam made a lot of money. There, there's probably still a sort of nasty little inherent bias against female-driven action movies by the, the, the people who consume them. Probably can't underrate the rated R portion of it, too. So. Yeah, that was probably a mistake, learning the wrong lessons from Deadpool or Joker, for that matter. Yeah. Did you see uh, Birds of Prey? I did not. I saw it the other day. I had a, I had a really good time. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I, it's probably my favorite uh, DC movie. Really? More. I mean, more... Not, not not counting Batman's, but like the DCU. Wonder Woman? Yeah, Shazam. I think it's better than... I, I enjoyed it better than both Wonder Woman and Shazam. Okay. I had a, like a really good time. Ewan McGregor. Fantastic. <laughs> fair enough. Um, oh, P.S. Uh, Knives Out just passed, sorry, 300 million. Uh, not 400 million, but still a pretty damn big number for, for that type of film despite the star power the profit margin there is way higher than a you know even a a marvel movie likely right if you you count just production budget and ad budget so 40 yeah 40 40 million budget i mean you gotta think if you take bets on three movies like that a year if you're a studio uh that one of them will at least pay for the other two especially if you're if you're hiring the right people it's just sort of fun to sit on the sidelines and watch that and the rise of Skywalker thing happens simultaneously, and <laughs> yeah. just just and just to watch um, Ryan Johnson just be a consummate gentleman, and you know, and just sort of sit on the sidelines and, and smile and give nice interviews and not you know not jab at, uh, at Lucasfilm or anything and just do his thing and quietly laugh all the way to the bank. God, he's had a great few months, hasn't he? I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, 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 at home alone, he must just be so fucking proud of himself. <laughs> I, I would be so happy with myself. My God. <laughs> all right, I mean, you want to talk a little more about sort of. Uh, the movies we discussed over the year and then maybe uh, in retrospect what you think your favorite i mean do you have a top 10 list uh, at the ready here matt not only do i have a top 10 list i managed to find my top 10 list from 99 oh shit 99 was the first year i ever made a top 10 films of the year list i've been oh doing it i've been doing it ever God. since so i i found it on an old hard drive and i have it right here it's not as embarrassing as as you'd expect um there are a couple little outliers on here and i so i have an old one and i have a revised one but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, let's just go through it really briefly. My, my goal was always to do 20 films for the 20th anniversary of 99. And I think we ended up doing 21 films over 18 episodes. Yeah, we started this thing a year ago this week talking about Varsity Blues and She's All That. Sort of roped in Cruel Intentions and 10 Things I Hate About You because they obviously, like, how can you have a conversation about these types of films in this year without talking about all four of those movies? So, uh, yeah, well, ultimately, like, what are your thoughts? And we could even talk about American Pie in the same conversation, even though it didn't come out till July. You know, we talked about all the bubblegum pop that was happening in early, you know, late 98 slash early 99 and the explosion of the Backstreet Boys and Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and all that kind of stuff that was happening and the fact that we, you know, the oldest millennials were in high school, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old at the time. So there, I guess there was maybe a little more of a push for films that were pitched directly at us and at the high school experience. It seems like on revisiting these types of movies, it seems like they didn't hold up particularly well, right? Particularly She's All That didn't hold up very well on yeah, rewatch. Yeah, it didn't hold, up, didn't hold very well at all. Varsity Blues is still fun. I think we both agreed on that. I was a little harsher on it than you were. <laughs> Mostly I was just excited about uh, starting off the series, so I probably was in a pretty good mood when we had that conversation. I don't know. I mean, it's another interesting thing with, with streaming. Like, those types of high school movies have kind of gone out of fashion over the last 20 years in terms of theater releases, but they've kind of found a new home on, on the streaming services, right? It That surprises me because, you know, high school-aged types tend to have 
some disposable income, and um, those movies usually aren't terribly expensive because there's not going to be a lot of star power involved, probably. You're going to be casting a bunch of teenagers. Unfortunately, I think it's another one of these self-fulfilling prophecy situations where 17-year-olds just don't equate Friday night activities. Like, they just don't go to the movies on a Friday night the way that we did, right? Yeah, I mean, you lose two hours of, of social media. So there's the FOMO aspect of it. Kids also don't, I don't think they do have as much disposable income as they used to. I mean, all the sort of low, low wage jobs are, you know, there's been a lot made of that where like the minimum wage jobs are taken by college graduates, not by high schoolers anymore. So yeah, I think there's probably some uh, global economic trends that have something to do with this. And, you know, for these low budget movies, you, you can make a satisfying high school movie for that crowd at a streaming service level budget as opposed to a feature film budget too again i really would love to see the numbers on something like to all the boys i loved before and because but it has to the numbers have to be good i mean they just released a sequel to it the numbers are good enough or at least they'd like us to believe that they are good enough my fiance went to a viewing party of the sequel last night with a bunch of her friends to watch to watch the sequel either netflix is taking advantage of a uh, sort of void in the market or it's just been decided somehow that those movies aren't viable theatrically yeah, which is a shame because um, I like high school movies. And, <laughs> you know. I mean, we have a good test case this year. Like, book smart, well-hyped, extremely well-reviewed, beloved by everyone who saw it, and it absolutely flopped. No, you're right. You're right. That that movie should have gone should have gone to Netflix. It just, um, yeah, sometimes it just hurts to say that out loud. The aforementioned Paul Thomas Anderson is making a high school movie right now, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. So I'm very much looking forward to that. We might even see it before the end of the year. Fingers crossed. Next up uh, on our in our series was Office Space, which is a movie that you've loved for the last 20 years. That's a movie I came to much later. Uh, it's just a beloved cult favorite, and it really falls in line with Fight Club and American Beauty thematically. Like those three movies, I think, sort of form something of a triangle of ennui, a triangle of like male dissatisfaction at the end of the 20th century. Yeah, and it, it still remains uh, a very prescient, trenchant film. It is a prime example of sort of that Gen X nihilism uh, that, that we're talking about when we talk about 99 movies. Is it, is it on Netflix or, or one of those services? It should be. It should just live on Netflix indefinitely. <laughs> like, it, I mean, talk about just the perfect movie to put on in the background in a dorm. Next up is is The Matrix, which has just never been one of my favorites. But uh, but talk about a zeitgeisty movie, right? I mean, that thing just came on like wildfire and seems like most people still, still love it. It was one of the most discussed films in the 1999 discourse over the last 12, uh, 14 months. Uh, yeah. And it, you know, they're filming the frickin' fourth one right now. Yeah. Who is it? Is it Michael B. Jordan? Keanu, Michael B. Jordan, Carrie Ann Moss. Okay. Um, some Fish, other folks. Fishburne? I don't know if Larry Fishburne's in it. And it's only one of the Wachowski siblings, right? I think it's just Lana, I want to say. Yeah, something like that. I believe. Neil Patrick Harris and Jada Pinkett. Oh, she, oh, Jada Pinkett's back. That's good. I, I love the second half of The Matrix, let's put it that way, which I guess is ultimately just the more fun half, so it's not a, not a revolutionary statement. Uh, the next two are two of my favorite types of high school movies, Go and Election. I guess Go is a little more of a, like a, maybe more of like a college freshman movie, but Go and Election from Alexander Payne 
and Doug Lyman, respectively. Uh, uh, Go has sort of like fallen off the cultural radar, and but Election has only just grown in esteem over the last 20 years. Another movie that was a, that was a flop at the time, although nominated for an Oscar. Election even more so with the politics nowadays. I think female politicians and sometimes even male politicians get labeled a real Tracy Flick type character sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it's just part of getting older, but at the time, Election was 100% a high school movie for me. Now, Election is 100% a political movie for me, right? Yes. Yeah. And apparently was, I believe the book that it's based on was patterned after the 1992 election, right? That was the Ross Perot year. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. I think, um, <laughs> I think Chris, I think Chris Klein's sister is the Ross Perot in that. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's the, uh, yeah, it's the animal farm of the 1992 election. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, next is The Phantom Menace. You know, what more is there to say? Yeah, I mean, I think you could you can make an argument that that's the beginning, the internet coming to be when that movie comes out, sort of the beginning of toxic fandom in a way almost. Okay, sure. That'd be a, a deeper sort of research paper. We talked about this on uh, on our Oscar prediction episode, but John Williams nominated for six of the nine uh, Skywalker saga Star Wars films. And I think it's pretty easy to guess which three films in the, Star, in the Skywalker saga he was not Oscar nominated for. Um, although, as you made a very good point, that like uh, Duel of the Fates. It's a real banger. Uh, Run Lola Run came out in June of 99 in the States, uh, 98 overseas. God damn, I just adore the movie so much. I know you weren't nearly as high on it as I was. I, just to me, just so incredibly influential. Some might say in the wrong way. Some might say it's a movie like that gives birth to something like 1917 in terms of how it's influenced by video games or whatever, right? I just am personally fascinated by that type of like mind game filmmaking almost the video gamification of, of movies in a way too sort of started there i know a lot of people are very scared of that and a lot of people use that as the main nexus of criticism against something like 1917 but the gamification of movies doesn't scare me the way it scares a lot of people south park bigger longer and uncut one of our favorites right yeah absolutely it's in my top 10 list uh it held up better than i could have ever hoped yeah it's interesting i mean south park became like a, a twitter thing the other day did you see that someone made a sweeping statement on how it had negatively affected men in america over the last uh, 20 years uh, i don't want to get into it because it's really silly i want to go back to something what, what do you say to people who uh call 1917 a video game yeah yeah that's what I, that's what I, that's what i mentioned earlier that like it's not something like run lola run I think eventually gives birth to something like 1917 and to me that's that's not a bad thing but a lot of people feel that 1917 is just a first person shooter and I really feel like that's a very reductive reading of that movie. I mean I'm a, I'm just a big 1917 defender ultimately. 1917 not winning best picture was the best possible thing that could have happened in that movie because now it has gone from being the front runner to something like a little bit of an underdog status because it lost to Parasite. So now I think people may reevaluate it a little bit, which is something I think the movie deserves because I really feel like we're undervaluing that movie and and uh, I, I think it's wildly inappropriate to say, ah, it's just a video game movie. I don't care about the characters. I, mean, I just That's just not the experience I had with that movie. <laughs> that, that's interesting. And I, and I agree with you that it probably is the best thing for it. But that sort of thing really does show how, whether or not you, you like this fact, but it does go to show that the Oscars are kind of important in terms of how people are going <laughs> to view movies down the line. Well... <laughs> I feel, I don't disagree with you, but I also feel like we base importance on how, whether or not they go our way, right? At last year when Green Book won, we're like, ah, the Oscars don't matter anymore. They're totally out of touch. Like, fuck those guys. Like, they're... You know, they, don't have, they don't have their finger on the pulse. They don't know what's going on. And now when Parasite wins this year, we're like, oh, we love the Oscars. They're great. Oh, isn't this exciting? <laughs> like the right I movie wasn't, won. I wasn't talking about love or hate. I was just talking about objectively, like 1917 is going to be looked at differently now. People are going to be mad at Green Book forever. 
And if it if it had not been nominated for anything and what it was rediscovered twenty years later as like a hidden gem or something, maybe people would you know, maybe they had a better shot of being historically relevant. Like you said, now nineteen seventeen has a sort of a leg up in the future and how it's regarded. Here's why the Oscars are important. Over this last weekend, Parasite it, it doubled its biggest weekend. It's been out since September, and it made twice as much money over this last weekend than it did in its biggest weekend at the box office. That's go. why the Oscars are important. Um, moving on, uh, American Pie, which, uh, I don't know, is still just a movie that makes me laugh, although plenty of problematic things that we brought up in that conversation. I, I still have a soft spot for the franchise. I even like fucking, I, I, I even liked American Reunion. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm not afraid. I'm not embarrassed to say it. Maybe you should be, but you're not embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I was a 16-year-old boy, and, and I, I just laughed my ass off in, in the movie theater in July of 1999. And then a week later, I went and saw Eyes Wide Shut in the same movie theater and had a much different experience, to say the least stanley kubrick's haunting final masterpiece as the trailers reminded us still one of the uh weirdest movie going experiences of my life you know seeing it in the mall of america by myself (laughs) during during (laughs) an rv trip with my family what a nice just little cherry on top for uh for 1999 to have just kubrick's last masterpiece quite a movie whether you love it sort of dislike it or confused by it it's still something i think that i think an argument could be made that 1999 was the most important year for tom cruise he had eyes wide shut in July of 99, he had Magnolia in December of 99, and then early 2000, he had um, Mission Impossible 2. Now, I'm not saying Mission Impossible 2 is a good movie, but just those three films back to back to back, I mean, that really sums it up, right? He's one of the only guys who can do that, who can do all of that. Unfortunately, he has never been that guy again. Like, 99 was probably his greatest year ever, but he has never been that auteur-driven, that auteur-seeking movie star ever again yeah i i wonder if part of it is like he sort of blew his load in that in, in that year and just sort of like he he has that as his bona fides and like how you can't really do much better than pta and stanley kubrick so unless something comes around that's really really enticing he just doesn't need to it just would have been interesting to see a sliding door scenario in which he beat michael kane for the in which he had won an oscar for magnolia and if things would have been different, because he should have won the Oscar for Magnolia. And the idea of Tom Cruise winning his Oscar for a supporting role, that's that's exactly what happened to Brad Pitt last weekend. I just think it, it may have set him off on a different path. And I just I like to I like to fantasize about that sliding doors scenario. He may never get nominated again. Is considering who he is now, his reputation, the types of films he's making now. Don't get me wrong. I fucking adore the Mission Impossible movies, and I'm very much looking forward to Maverick. But he is just not the same capital A actor that he was at the end of the 20th century. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I think I think we're going to need a... It'll be like in his 60s or 70s where he'll he'll do some more prestige stuff. That's that's my prediction. Yeah, when he, when he finally ages out of the Ethan Hunt thing, he may need to reset. And I really hope he gets to reset with by reteaming with PTA or somebody like that. Re- reteaming with Martin Scorsese. What if he was, you know, like apparently Tarantino courted him for the uh, Brad, for the role that Brad Pitt won an Oscar for last weekend. So wouldn't that be exciting if if, if Quentin Tarantino could convince him to uh, come along for the ride on his 10th and final movie? Yeah, I also think, you know, there'll probably be a Color of Money sequel at some point, right? <laughs> well, the Color of Money is a sequel. No, no, so. I, I know what I'm saying. It'll, it'll, he'll, he'll do what Paul Newman did at some point, right? Oh, I love it. Okay, great. So Martin Scorsese completes the Hustler trilogy, and now Tom Cruise is the 
is in the Paul Newman. I love it. This is great. The question is, who's the young upstart? Who's in the quote unquote Tom? It's got to be a woman, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think a woman makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. All right, sounds good. We slot uh, we, we slot Emma Stone in there or something. Sure. I mean, she might. I, I think we need another 10, 15 years for Tom Cruise to really be in that Paul Newman range. But so yeah, we don't know who it is yet. It's Co- Koi Vanzani Wallace from Beast of <laughs> Beast of the Southern Wild, right? That's yes, who it is. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, then there's the Sixth Sense. We've we've uh, covered it on multiple podcast by this point it's a perfectly fun movie I, it's, it's, it's it's very totally fine it's totally fine bowfinger one of my favorite comedies uh i feel like i failed in my attempt to uh bring you over to the bowfinger side during that conversation <laughs> I, th- I think it's fine i respect it i like frank oz but it's it's totally fine totally fine uh, september of 99 was your best picture winner american beauty i still find it quite interesting i still find it quite watchable but a lot has changed <laughs> many things have happened over the course that, of the last that 20 years sums it up pretty darn well you know speaking of the um the oscars for 98 which took place in march of 99 the nomination morning you know who announced the nominations for the 98 nominees kevin spacey announced the nominations then a year later he he won his second oscar well look at that yeah. so it's gonna be john cho this year <laughs> well, nothing would make me happier than for john cho to win an oscar oh i love that guy in october of last year we did a uh, we did a double feature three kings and the limey two movies that i absolutely adore as i said i i mean i think I said it at the time. I think Three Kings is David O. Russell's best film, and I think The Limey is Soderbergh's best film. Full stop. A couple of the movies uh, that we went over in, in uh, for 99, I have rewatched multiple times since and have grown in esteem. And one of those is The Limey. Yeah, I, I, it's such a good watch. My God. He was, Soderbergh was at some retrospective a couple months ago. It actually was... I think it was in January of 2020, so it was past the it was past the 20th anniversary, but it was a 20th anniversary uh, retrospective of that film. It was in New York. I really wanted to be there, and I programmed that film as part of a screening series, part of a seminar that we did at Columbia last February. Wow, a year ago this month, and uh, and I got to do a whole presentation, wrote a whole paper about it, did a Q and A afterwards about the importance of the Limey. It was it was just one of the great one of the great pleasures of my life actually to get to celebrate that movie, which kind of went somewhat unnoticed in '99. And I think the cult has really grown up around that movie. And I don't think you'd call it the urtext of, you know, Soderbergh's storytelling, unique storytelling style. You, you probably would need to go to uh, out of sight for that. To me, Lalimi will always be the crystallization of his unique set of skills. And that's why I think it's his best work. Fight Club, it seems to be kind of the consensus, somewhat boring consensus opinion of best film of 99 retrospectively gun to people's head who uh, really care about this stuff i think that would be the number one it wouldn't be sort of a majority be a plurality but uh yeah i mean i, I feel like it's that and um, maybe magnolia right sure yeah or i mean and a lot of people are passionate about the matrix then the insider the aforementioned brian barini's favorite movie of 99 maybe of all time yeah and that's the other one i've watched multiple times since and uh you'll you'll see where it lands on my list but uh fuck what a masterpiece that movie is speaking of masterpieces well at least I feel this way. It sounds like you and Ryan Julio did not feel this way about Magnolia, which I think is just as fresh today as, and, and this is coming from somebody who didn't really like it in 99. didn't really get it. I think I was too young for Magnolia in 99. I just adore it. I, I still think it's his, his second best film. And what I want more than anything for his upcoming high school movie is I want him to go back and be that type of filmmaker one more time. If 
the Irishman was Scorsese kind of like riffing on old Scorsese. If, if the Irishman was Scorsese's commentary on the Scorsese who made Goodfellas, then I really would like it. It would make me so happy if PTA's upcoming high school movie was a commentary on Heart 8, Boogie Nights, and, and Magnolia, early PT. I would love for him to reflect on his early work in that manner. And it sounds like from the subject matter, I might get my wish. Yeah, I don't need the reflection. I don't need the last 45 minutes being really, really boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm with you, mostly. <laughs> on that same episode, we discussed the talented Mr. Ripley, which um, seems to me, up until a few months ago, it seems like nobody really had a super strong opinion about it and then we all sort of revisited it simultaneously and everybody was just collectively like oh that movie's fucking great like why do we not talk about talented mr ripley more that movie's that movie rocks it's an incredible movie it's it's up there with my two or three favorite movies of the year for sure i fucking love it i i i feel like it, it's still a movie that people a lot of people haven't discovered yet and when they do yeah like uh like our friend ryan julio they they understand uh, how sort of subversive and insane and just tremendous the movie is should have been a bigger player at the oscars that year and considering the pedigree behind it everybody sort of thought it was going to be and then everybody just sort of shrugged and sort of you know patted it on the head and if we it would be interesting to do like a revisionist history situation where looking at all these movies now if we were to do you know if we were to nominate these movies for oscars today of course american beauty would not dominate dominate the way that it did in 99 but it would just be interesting to see you know fight club work you know brad pitt and fight club work his way in there talented mr ripley be nominated yeah. for best picture R- ripley like takes all of a uh, setter house rules yeah yeah magnolia ends up paul thomas anderson ends up winning paul thomas anderson is still oscar less if we did this today he would absolutely he absolutely would beat alan ball for that original screenplay oscar and then the i guess what you'd call sort of like our bonus episode, a, a movie that nobody was asking us to cover and what we did anyway, which is Any Given Sunday, which is just a movie that <laughs> makes me happy. And I thought it was uh, a great episode. It was a great episode. It's a batshit insane movie. Uh, if you haven't watched it, and you don't, even if you don't care about football, just give it a go because it is—it's something else. It is unhinged, and it—you know—you you, want to just witness a pure 110% Al Pacino performance. Uh, that's it. All right, Matt, I, w- I want to hear your 1999, yeah, time capsule. Okay. Uh, here we go. Okay, so in 99, when we were uh, juniors in high school, I was starting to write about, I was doing uh, I was doing reviews for our, what was it called? The Seattle Prep Panther? Was our, was our newspaper called The Panther? Yeah. I was writing articles for The Panther, and I did my top 10 list of the year, the very first one I ever did. I've done it every year since for the last 20. And my top 10 in descending order, October Sky, Dogma, Talented Mr. Ripley, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Run, Lola, Run, Election, Go, Three Kings, Fight Club, and number one, American Beauty. Uh, My revised list 20 years later, it's not that different, but uh, there are a couple films that fell off. In descending order, uh, 10 to 1, Being John Malkovich, Toy Story 2, Run, Lola, Run, Three Kings, The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Insider, Magnolia, Go, Fight Club, and number one is The Limey. All right, I like that. So my number 10, descending order, Fight Club, The Limey, Election, South Park, Matrix, Eyes Wide Shut, Office Space, Being John Malkovich, Talented Mr. Ripley, and The Insider. All right, since you, since you brought up Being John Malkovich, I really want to just briefly go through a list. I, I put together a list of 20 movies that we didn't cover that I think are significant. And we don't have to spend nearly as much time on them because some of them you may not have revisited recently. Uh, the Blair Witch Project we talked about briefly. Brian Rafferty uh, dedicated an entire chapter to it. Uh, that was a really important, very zeitgeisty movie that came out of Sundance in, in 99. Yeah, I mean, that's the first sort of uh, big internet phenomenon, really. Uh, I think ultimately maybe the website or the PR campaign for that movie 
is the most important thing to come from that movie. Uh, I don't think the movie's particularly rewatchable, but it was it was a phenomenon at the time, to say the least. Um, Summer of Sam, which I think is a somewhat undervalued, underappreciated uh, Spike Lee film. Not a not a great movie, but kind of a fun movie. Got kind of a sexy cast: young Adrian Brody and Leguizamo and. Mira Sorvino. It, maybe fun is the wrong word because it's pretty darn violent and, and kind of punishing. I'm not sure Spike Lee has ever made a fun movie. Maybe Inside it's, Man. In, inside yeah, Man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's a good New, good New York movie. It, that movie is just like dripping with like sex and sweat and blood. It's just uh it's a very visceral movie. Uh, Arlington Road, which I haven't seen in many years, but I remember having a lot of fun with in, in God, I've, I saw that, yeah, 20 years ago. I haven't seen it since. It's, I think that's Mark Pellington, who is a, a music video director. And I, if memory serves, I think it was written by Aaron Kruger, probably most famous now for writing the last couple of Transformers movies. Yeah, at the time, it was it, it was it was Jeff Bridges during that like uh, blown away era, right? He was doing a lot of those kinds of movies where he was running towards the camera with a very concerned look on his face. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Deep Blue Sea. Rennie Harlan's Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, one of the greatest speeches by Sam Jackson in that movie. Yeah, years before the the whole um, snakes on a plane thing. Sam Jackson has been doing this for a while, people. Like, he fucking invented this stuff. And it is one of the all-time great like YouTube clip scenes. Even if you're not gonna, it's not a great, it's not a very good movie, but it is, uh, it is fun to go revisit that clip. And there's just like a lot of wacky stuff going on in that film. And also an incredibly deep, roster of great character actors you know you forget Rappaport and Stellan Skarsgård and, and, and LL Cool J of course uh, the aforementioned Iron Giant it's a fun movie I revisited it last year it's it's fine I, I think it's I a think little, little overrated I think I'm on your side where I think it's a little overrated it's fine it's I mean you know it's Vin, it's, it's Vin Diesel doing the Groot thing years before Groot I mean, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same gag. And the aesthetics of it are, are, are quite unique. It's it's clearly just a very personal film for Brad Bird. And, and it's just like, it, it definitely has his fingerprints all over it. So in that regard, if, if you're a big bird head, it, it's obviously an important text. Uh, the Thomas Crown Affair, which we're, gonna, um, we're going to dive into more deeply in an upcoming McTiernan episode. I adore that movie. I think it's wonderful. I've, I've I just revisited it for the McTiernan series, and I just think it's charming as hell. I'm a big fan of that movie. Loved it in the theater. Probably saw it multiple times. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's tremendous, and I love the upper class prestige heist movie. You know, which yeah. is not necessarily about the heist. It's great. Yeah, that's the movie that uh, like Ocean's Eight, Nine, Ten. Yeah, Ocean's Eight should have been right. Kind of, I feel like that's what Ocean's Eight was going for, and, and kind of failed. Or you mean Ocean? Do you mean Ocean's Twelve? No, <laughs> no, Ocean's Eight, the one that's in New York. Okay, the one with the ladies. Ocean's Lady Eight. One. Yeah. All right. For love of the game, rewatched it recently. Bad movie. Uh, our good friend Scott Henderson's going to have some words with you for that statement. I haven't seen it in a long time. Costner was recently on Bill Simmons' podcast like a few months back and told some really fun stories about that movie. He got he got some roid injections. Yeah. For- He's very, <laughs> very upfront about his drug use during the making of that movie. <laughs> it is a, it is a pretty fun idea for the, for a movie. Great idea, terrible execution. Great idea, really cool framing device. Bad execution on Sam Raimi's part. Actually, it's not I, even uh, Sam Raimi's fault. It's a badly written movie. Again, I haven't seen it in many years. It's one of our friend Scott's favorite movies, and it's one of my father's favorite movies. But a lot of baseball stuff that has to do with that. So. Um, Boys Don't Cry, which uh, Hilary Swank won won her first Oscar for. She she is a two time Oscar winner. I, I I would have in '99 
looking at that film and, and how much of a phenomenon it became, I would have thought that Kimberly Pierce would be an Oscar winner by now. Her career didn't really pan out the way I think a lot of us thought it would, considering just what a kind of breath of fresh air that movie was. I also, I'm not, I haven't revisited it recently. I'm not quite sure if it holds up or not, but at the, at the time it was a pretty big deal, especially considering how small the budget on it was. And the fact that the fact that it was nominated for for two Oscars. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it in, in many years, but uh, I remember watching it and being impressed, but also sort of, yeah, taken aback. I think Annette Benning was the favorite going into those Oscars. Oscars. And it is like looking back at the 99 Oscars, which took place in March of 2000, if Annette Bening would have won for Best Actress, then American Beauty would have become the would have become the fourth film to have won the big five Oscars. Only three other movies have done that. And it would just be crazy. And, and she was the favorite. It could have very easily happened. And if it had happened, it would just be interesting to think of considering American Beauty's reputation now, if it if it was in that exclusive company of being one of the four movies, because, you know, people obviously consider it happened one night, one flow of the cuckoo's nest and the silence of the lambs to be three of the most important, you know, the greatest movies ever made, where very rarely do people at cocktail parties admit to uh, believing American Beauty to be a, a masterpiece. So if it, if it existed in that company, it was one Oscar away from being in that rarefied air. Next up is One Day in September. It's a wonderful documentary narrated by um, Michael Douglas. Have you seen One Day in September? It's about the Munich Olympics uh, terrorist uh, attack. You know, very dark subject matter, obviously. I mean, it was an inspiration for Steven Spielberg's Munich, obviously. It's a great doc. Won the documentary Oscar that year. Uh, Dogma. Kevin Smith's Dogma. God, I love that movie when it came out. (laughs) I'm I'm very scared to rewatch it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It was a big deal for a number of reasons, not least of which it was was Affleck and Damon's follow-up to um, Good Will Hunting. It was a pretty big coup when Kevin Smith was able to call in a favor with those guys because <laughs> he was, you know, one of the producers on Good Will Hunting um, and had obviously worked with both of them before. So that was that was a pretty big deal. And a lot of people were picketing that movie. A lot, you know, a lot of people. There was a lot of protests going on, and and that is a movie that is completely lost to time. Right? <laughs> was the last time anybody discussed that movie outside? I've of heard conversation anyone like talk this. about it. Yeah, I mean the sort of. Uh, I'm sure in the in the remaining uh, Kevin Smith head circle. Um, it's still regarded quite well, but yeah, I, I haven't even considered watching it or heard anyone mention it in a decade. Having not seen it in, in, in over a decade, I feel that it is his third best movie. Put that in whatever, <laughs> whatever that's worth. Okay. Toy Story 2, just just a wonderful movie that holds up really well. I rewatched it recently. I love it. Eclipsed by by the third film, but at the time it was like, oh wow, they did it again. Amazing! Like, and that movie was supposed to go straight to video. Do you rank them three, two, four, one, three, two, one, four? I How think I rank them three, two, one, four. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, I don't think there's any bad Toy Story movies. I think they're all wonderful, and that one just felt like it was just such a surprise like i i can't believe they captured this they captured this magic again the straight story david lynch movie lovely movie richard farnsworth on a tractor uh <laughs> the world is not enough the third let's see the second best pierce brosnan bond movie uh sure i mean i don't think <laughs> distant distant second let's say that's not even the way to rank them it's just gold nine than everything else so. yeah that's fair but i i find it empirically better than um Tomorrow Never Dies. So let's put it this way. GoldenEye is clearly the best one. Die Another Day is clearly the worst one. If you want to flip-flop Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough, I'm not going to fight you. I, I find there to be some pleasures in The World Is Not Enough, but a lot of people ding it for the fact that it had, that for the whole Denise Richards thing. God, what what a disservice uh, <laughs> the screenwriters did, the Broccoli's did to Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, so he, he, he kind of got screwed because, like you said, he made one good one and three pretty bad ones so it'll be interesting to see what happens with no time to die because um no actor who's ever played james bond has gone out on a high note 
No one has ever gone out on a good Bond movie. Unless you want to count Lazenby, who only did one, which is a very good Bond movie, but he only did one. So it's pretty hard to include him in that. But Connery went out on Diamonds Are Forever, which is kind of fun, but ultimately pretty silly and disposable. Uh, Roger Moore went out on A View to a Kill, which is he's probably the second or third worst one in the entire franchise. And Brosnan went out and died another day, which is the worst one in the franchise. Oh, and, um, and George, uh, what's his name? Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton went out on License to Kill, which is a bad Bond movie. So anyway, uh, The Cider House Rules, you mentioned it earlier. That is not, that is a film that has not come up in any 99 retro spectating. I mean, that is just a really typical, boring award season type of movie, even though I like the book and I like John Irving stuff. And I like, you know, I, I like Michael Caine and Charlize. Not the most exciting movie it's fine i haven't watched it in a, in many many years i remember liking it just fine yeah i remember really really liking it at the time and it was a it was a big hit being taken aback by like oh this this movie is like secretly about abortion like i didn't i hadn't read the book i didn't see that coming but, uh yeah john irving and then uh, what's his name lassa halstrom was really having a moment like lassie halstrom really got he was hot a go-to there. guy for a while yeah. he was yeah um now he makes uh, nicholas sparks movies being john malkovich that is a movie i really wanted to find a home for in our series and i'm kind of embarrassed we never got around to it that that's an important 99 movie it is and spike's a big deal and it was his introduction to the feature film audience yeah i think it holds up great i haven't really thought about my rankings of spike john's movies but i don't know i'm curious to see to what degree he continues making movies at a rapid clip i mean he's 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 going longer and longer, it seems, between his films. Yeah, being John Malkovich holds up tremendously, and it's a whole lot of fun, and it's really, really weird. What would you give for another Charlie Kaufman Spike Jones team up? Oh, God, from your mouth to God's ears. Uh, Charlie Kaufman is making a Netflix movie, which is supposed to come out this year, which I'm quite excited for. I feel like uh, being John Malkovich would not be that high on my Jones ranking, but then again, he hasn't made that many movies. So, and I don't think he's made a bad one. I'm not crazy about where the wild things are, but I don't think he's made a. I don't think he's made a bad film yet. Yeah, being John Malkovich was just to use this term again, just kind of a breath of fresh air. I saw it on a date at the uh, Neptune Theater in Seattle. And at the beginning of the screening, they handed out um, Malkovich face placards. Like they handed out these so that there's a moment where like before the screening started, they said, all right, everybody put on your Malkovich face. And we all put these Malkovich faces in front of our face and they took a picture and it was kind of adorable. This this next one is important to a lot of people. It's never been important to me. I saw it. I saw it for the first time only a couple years ago and I don't really understand what all the fuss is about. And that's Galaxy Quest. I just don't really I just don't get it. Yeah, I saw that in a theater in Hawaii on a vacation during uh, during Christmas break. Humble, humble brag. <laughs> Hawaii's not that cool. Overrated. <laughs> yeah, I remember liking it when I was, you know, 18 or 16. But yeah, I, I haven't risen since. But it is interesting. It does seem to have quite a cult following. Next up is a movie that uh, nobody has really been talking about when they talk about 99, but it was a goddamn Best Picture nominee, and that's uh, Frank Darabont's The Green Mile. Yeah, that movie, I think no one talks about the movie because it's it's just painful to watch. So emotional, so devastating. Follow up to Shawshank. Um, yeah, I saw it once in the theater. I think I cried once or twice, and I didn't need to see it again. It's one of those movies. It's a tough movie, especially given the fact that Michael Clark Duncan was died so young. Um, I ran into him in a in a restroom in Santa Monica one time. I was at a I was at a I was at a restaurant. Past and future guest, friend of the show, Laura Crow, was working at it. She was bartending at a restaurant in Santa Monica, and I was visiting her for dinner. And then I went up to use the bathroom, and I literally ran smack dab into Michael Clark Duncan. How could you not? He's a, he's an enormous man. And uh, I said, "Excuse me," and I looked up, and he was wearing a bright purple suit he was, yeah. he was wearing like a zoot he, he was dressed like he, he's wearing like, his kingpin yeah. exactly like he just come right off the set of um, of daredevil or something <laughs> and he said uh, no problem man and he just pushed by me and, and, and excused himself but that was my yeah that was my michael and and honestly like a year later he was dead it's crazy yeah great sam rockwell in that movie formative rockwell 
and then uh, Man on the Moon, starring Jim Carrey. Back when Jim Carrey was in a momentary bid for some prestige and some Oscar nominations, which never panned out. You know, I, I haven't seen that movie in a while. I remember really enjoying it. And there's some kind of weird, fun meta stuff going on in that film. Yeah, I, I really liked it. Uh, you know, it was, Milos Forman had a fun little run in the 90s there with uh, that and People vs. Larry Flint. Again, this is another movie I haven't watched in probably 10, 12 years. And mostly because I don't want to uh, have a bad feeling about the movie because I really liked it when it came out. And just briefly before we wrap up, I was looking back at the last year of the last I went back 90 years and looked at the last year of the last nine decades and I was just looking at the final year of each decade 89 79 69 and so on and just kind of like looking at the types of films that make up the top grocers of the year and then looking at the films that were nominated for best picture and we you know we were talking about the fact that Joker was the only uh, best picture nominee that was in the top 10 films of last year 2009 um, Avatar and Up were both nominated for best picture and just kind of like how far back you have to go into a list like this to see legitimate crossover between these two lists and to kind of think about how great these final year of their respective decades are in terms of films like it's i don't think it's a coincidence that that the last year of a decade tends to be a really strong year in cinema so if we just look back 2009 you got you know avatar you got up and and then that and then that year of course that's the you know the blind side inglorious bastards a serious man up in the air district nine i mean that's that, that's a strong year and then in 89 on your uh, highest grocer list you have things like born on the fourth of july honey i shrunk the kids dead poet society Back to the Future 2, Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and then Born on the Fourth of July and Dead Poets Society uh, are also uh, Best Picture nominees that year. In 1979, the top 10 grossing movies are The Muppet Movie, Moonraker, The Jerk, 10, Alien, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Apocalypse Now, Rocky II, The Amityville Horror, and the highest grossing film of 1979 at $106 million was that year's Best Picture winner, Kramer vs. Kramer. Wow. Yeah, crazy, right? That is crazy. Yeah, good year. I mean, I, I think people just, you know, back in the day, had it was just more word of mouth. Sure. Yeah, it's just, I mean, the equivalent of that is like, imagine if Marriage Story was the highest grossing film of 2019, right? Yeah, it'd be batch it. It's yeah. just a, it was just a different time. I'll keep going real briefly. Uh, so 69, which was 50 years ago, not only the year that Tarantino was exploring in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but was also the year that Judy Garland died of a barbiturate overdose. Your top 10 films are uh, the aforementioned On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Goodbye Columbus, Cactus Flower, True Grit, The Italian Job. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Hello Dolly, Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. You have three of the films in the top five were nominated for Best Picture uh, that year. Hello Dolly, Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And then Midnight Cowboy, of course, goes on to win. Easy Rider is the third highest grossing film of the year. (laughs) How crazy is that? I mean, when we get back to these sort of years... There are just fewer films that are being released, too. Yeah, that's fair. It's important to note there's only five Best Picture nominees here as well. The, the films nominated for Best Picture that year, Midnight Cowboy, Anne of a Thousand Days, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Hello, Dolly, and then the aforementioned Z, the first film to ever be nominated for both foreign and Best Picture. You know, history was made last weekend with a film that had uh, the similar distinction. Okay, in, uh, in 1959, you have three films from the top ten that end up as Best Picture winners. Anatomy of a Murder, North by Northwest, The Nun Story, Suddenly Last Summer, Imitation of Life, Pillow Talk, The Shaggy Dog, Some Like It Hot, Operation Petticoat, and then Ben-Hur, the eventual Best Picture winner. So that's another situation where you actually have the highest grossing film of the year ends up becoming the Best Picture winner. It's hard to imagine, you know, Avengers Endgame winning Best Picture. <laughs> uh, this this well, last year, but you know, but Joker could have, and yeah. Joker's what the third highest grossing movie of last year. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. It's close. 
Yeah, so, and I, I don't need to keep reading them all off, but in 1949, you have five of the top 10 highest grossing movies of the year nominees. So all five Best Picture nominees were in the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. In 1939, you have four of the f- top 10 highest grossing movies of the year are Best Picture nominees, and the highest grossing film of the year, Gone with the Wind, of course, goes on to win Best Picture. 39, w- widely considered to be the greatest year for American cinema, at least. Wizard of Oz, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Gone with the Wind, all nominated for Best Picture. And then in 1929, you have two of the top 10 highest grossers nominated for Best Picture. And Anyway, I guess my point is that um, I think there's something to this end of the decade ends up being a strong year for movies idea, because I think it's pretty darn clear that 2019 was one of the best years of the 2010s, right? I mean, it was backloaded for sure. Certainly was. I mean, w- do you have a theory on to why, <laughs> why this is? I mean, you know, you could say something silly like, oh, people are just rushing to get all the good stuff. You know, in something like 99, the, the silly theory is just like, oh, people are just like rushing to get all the good stuff out before Y2K or whatever. That's kind of that's kind of <laughs> dumb logic because movies take a long time to make, right? You know, like the movies take years to develop. And, you know, The Matrix was written in the early 90s, for example. So, like, this stuff doesn't necessarily have to all point to what's going on in the year it was released necessarily. It's probably more what was going on three years earlier, four years earlier, five years earlier. Um, I guess that's my long rambling roundabout way of saying I don't really have a theory about it. I just think it's just kind of interesting to look at it this way. Last year of a decade, we just loaded up with with good stuff, maybe unconsciously. Just to quote from Mr. Uh, Rafferty one more time, 99 was a four-quadrant year. It literally had something for everyone, and it was the most unruly, influential, and unrepentantly pleasurable film year of all time. All right, Matt, let's let's wrap this fucker up. It was a good it was a good series. I'm stoked we did all the 99 stuff. What do you think the next year that will be worthy of this? 2007, maybe? Yeah, I think that's that seems like the one that everybody, boy, we're gonna have to wait seven years to talk about that. We're gonna have to wait seven years to watch Michael Clayton again? I'll watch it about five times before that, but... Yeah, it seems like that's the strongest one since, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. I would make... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 2007. That's that. That's a big one. Well, retrospectating is done for the next seven years. So until then, this has been We Like Movies, retrospectating 1999. Don't forget, we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. <laughs> All right, and that's that. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Even though I lose you